Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is God's word. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to the book of Titus. As we pray together, come before God together by opening His Word. God, we are grateful to be gathered, to be assembled this morning for the sake of Your work among us and so that we might praise You together, the redeemed people of Your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that You would do Your work in us this morning by reminding us of the gospel, by the sure hope that we have because of the the sacrificial love of Your Son and that our lives would be shaped, and that we would live according to this truth. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen. This year, my wife Jessica and I decided to plant a garden. When we made that decision, we didn't know that it was going to be a summer of historic heat and drought. So all summer long, the garden has struggled along. And it probably hasn't done as well as it would have done during a normal year, but we've gotten a few cucumbers and a few tomatoes and a few other things from it. But what amazes me is that somehow, despite the heat and despite the drought, the amazing thing is that the weeds in our garden have absolutely thrived. (laughs) It is a constant struggle to deal with the weeds in the garden. And if we weren't out there constantly pulling them up or cutting them back, they would be absolutely everywhere taking over everything and choking out everything that we actually want to be there. There wouldn't be any cucumbers or tomatoes or anything else good that we want, just thick, tangled weeds that can somehow flourish no matter what is going on with the weather. Along the way this summer, this garden has been a helpful reminder to me of the way that God is dealing with me. I am His garden And if he were to turn his back, noxious weeds would spring up and they would begin to thrive. No matter what the weather of my life is like, whether things are good and life is easy or I face trials and suffering, it wouldn't take long for those weeds to start growing. But just like I take care of my garden at home because I don't want the weeds to choke out the good plants, God is at work in his people, pulling up the weeds and nurturing the things that he wants to grow there instead. Over time, He brings about a harvest of good things, what Scripture describes as the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and importantly for our passage this morning, self-control. It is the transformation of life that is reflected, however dimly, in the way that I care for my garden at home. And it is the objective of the feature of the Christian life that we are discussing this morning, gospel centrality. Two weeks ago, if you were here, you'll remember that we looked at a passage from the book of Ephesians that presented the gospel message itself in very strong and striking language. In that passage, Paul made clear that in sin, 
Humanity was not confused, challenged in some way, but spiritually dead. But that by grace, God made his people alive together with Christ, whose blood was shed for them and in whose name they are counted righteous. That is the gospel. It is the honest assessment that we are far worse sinners than we knew and the joyful realization that God is far more gracious than we knew. It is the beating heart of the Christian faith. Not just on day one, but every single day. The acknowledgement that not one person deserves God's approval or His blessing. That on their merit, they rightly deserve His anger and His wrath. But that in Christ, He has shown grace in love. The exchange of a perfect and pure life for one corrupted by sin and set against the holiness of God Himself. It is the best good news. And as we'll see in the passage that we're looking at this morning, the gospel changes everything on every single day of the Christian life. The fact that the book of Titus is a lesser-known book of Scripture is unfortunate because it is so dense with wisdom about how the gospel changes all of life, just crammed into its three brief chapters. It was written by Paul to his friend and partner in ministry, a man named Titus, who had been sent on a difficult mission. Titus had played an important role in Paul's ministry for years and years. He was a Greek Christian whose insight and cultural knowledge had been a helpful resource for Paul's ministry in Corinth, as we saw during our study of the book of 2 Corinthians. And now, that expertise is being called on again. Titus is being sent to the island of Crete, off the coast of Greece, where he has been given the task of rehabilitating, rehabilitating the church there. Evidently, Paul had gotten word that the Christian community on the island was struggling, so he sent Titus to go and help it recover and then grow. Specifically, Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders in every town. And then he goes on to explain what are the necessary qualifications for eldership. In chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul explains that in order to be an elder, a Christian man must be one of sterling character and reputation. And he must be devoted to the pure gospel as it is revealed in Scripture. That is the plan for the revitalization of the Cretan church. Godly leadership carried out by mature Christian men who are themselves submitted to the authority of God's Word. In fact, that is God's design for every church and the means by which any local body of believers will have and maintain health. So that seems like a straightforward assignment for Titus, apart from a few slight obstacles that stand in his way. The first was the current religious climate in Crete. Most of the people on the island were fiercely committed to their own local version of Greek mythology, and they believed that Zeus had actually been born on their island. They were proud of that, and a lot of ancient Cretan cultural identity was wrapped up in the belief that their island had some special spiritual significance. But there was a Christian presence on Crete, a handful of churches that Paul himself had helped to plant, and home to believers who he knew personally. However, it didn't take long after Paul finished his work there and moved on to help start churches elsewhere for some opportunistic false teachers to arrive in Crete and begin to infiltrate the churches there. They commanded that anyone who wanted to become a Christian had to obey the Jewish law. 
That in addition to faith and trust in Christ, they needed to do certain things in order to be acceptable to him. And as we discussed a couple weeks ago, there aren't many things that Paul hates more than the notion that either Christ requires something in addition to faith, or that any person is capable of offering Christ anything but faith. So Titus had to deal with both of these situations, navigating both a hostile situation outside the church and lots of misleading happening inside the church. Secondly, Paul knows that many of the false teachers in the church in Crete are swindlers, people that he refers to in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 as empty talkers and deceivers, teaching for shameful gain. They have sought to use their influence to manipulate the people and make a lot of money. Their strategy, evidently, was to set themselves up as the gatekeepers of spirituality, the ones who can lead people on the right path for the right price. Paul knows from experience that will make them dangerous for Titus. In Philippi, Paul had cast out a fortune-telling spirit out of a slave girl, and as a result, she was less profitable to the people that owned her. And in response, Paul and all his companions were beaten and thrown in prison. Titus is going to threaten the livelihood of these false teachers by preaching the true gospel, and that is going to make him a target. The third obstacle in Titus's way was the size and ruggedness of the island of Crete. Practically speaking, it was home to about 40 towns and villages at the time of Titus' arrival, which is a lot for Titus to manage. And on top of that, there was no road system connecting all these towns and villages. Instead, they were separated by difficult terrain. And Titus is going to have to deal with the physical demands that come with reaching each town and maintaining meaningful relationships from the other side of the island. Lastly, though, Titus is going to have to face the people of Crete themselves, who were well known for their violence, their lawlessness, and their generally unruly character. One ancient historian wrote that it's almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. That seems to have been a reputation that the Cretans wore as a badge of honor. Paul quotes from a Cretan poet in chapter 1, verse 12, who said that his own countrymen were always, uh, are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. These are the people that Titus is being sent to reform. More than any of the other obstacles that are in his way, this was probably the most intimidating. Cretans were often hired as mercenaries for the highest bidder. They had no unifying law code between the various towns on the island. Instead, each town had its own set of rules or no rules at all. It was a land full of port cities, which each had as many taverns as temples. And it was such a barbarous place that one of the ancient words for liar was actually the word Cretan. It was like being sent to the Wild West, where violence and lawlessness characterized the typical day. So it is an understatement to say that Titus has his work cut out for him. And that probably seemed even more daunting as he read on through this letter that his friend and mentor had sent him, in which Paul outlined some of the core tenets of Christian morality and doctrine, which Titus was to teach the Cretans to live out. Their ambition and their trust in the sovereignty of God to do such an amazing thing is admirable. Paul and Titus clearly 
trust the Lord to do an amazing thing in Crete. They expect to see the island won for Christ. Whole towns and villages turn from violence and greed and deceit to a completely new life characterized by faithfulness to Christ, charity, and kindness. So we might wonder, as Titus might have wondered, how such a thing might actually happen. The Cretans are such an unruly bunch, and the challenges facing Titus are so formidable that we wouldn't blame him for doubting Paul's optimism. But Paul reminds him in the opening of our passage, in verse 11, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is why it's worth taking the time to look at the background behind the book of Titus in the island of Crete. Those details help highlight an important truth that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. For Paul and for other ancient Christians, there might have been a temptation to write off the Cretans, to assume that they were too committed to the Greek gods that they worshipped, or too uncivilized or too violent to be reached with the gospel. It was probably really difficult to imagine Crete being anything but what it was, Or Paul and Titus might have looked at the situation and decided that the resources were too thin. There were only so many personnel to send out, and Crete was just too big a risk. But the saving grace of God has appeared, and it is for all people, including the ancient people of Crete. There are no lost causes. There is no one to whom the offer of grace and salvation is not extended in sincerity. God can and God does save those who seem furthest from Him. That was true then, and it is true today. It is a reminder that we need as much as Titus did for the people in our lives who we are tempted to write off and to think of as lost causes, who we think are too hard to reach with the gospel. God's grace is extended to them, and we need to remember that no one is beyond His reach if He claims them for Himself. Paul knew that, and he wants to put it in writing for Titus so that when he is discouraged, frustrated, or feeling defeated on Crete, as he surely will at various points, he'll be able to turn back to this passage and remember what is true. Forgiveness and grace are offered to the worst of sinners who need only take hold of them by faith. Salvation has come for all people, not just those who are easiest to reach. But that is not all that the gospel does. Paul points out that the grace of God does two things. It brings salvation, which we see in verse 11, and it trains God's people, which we see in verse 12. Earlier this year, Jessica and I joined a gym. Last year, I started having some issues with my knee, and my doctor suggested that I start lifting weights to build up the strength in the muscles and ligaments in my knee, in order to hopefully avoid having surgery down the road. I know this will come as a shock to you, but I don't have a ton of experience with weightlifting. So I've met with a few trainers at the gym who have walked me through how to use the equipment there and how to avoid hurting myself by doing things the wrong way. Without their guidance, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere. In fact, I may have gone in the wrong direction and aggravated the issue with my knee. But with their expertise, I've slowly made steps in the right direction. That's the difference that a trainer can make. 
And Paul says to Titus that the grace of God is what trains his people and keeps them moving in the right direction. It does this by both producing a negative result, the removal of something bad, and also producing a positive result, the addition of something good. Negatively, the grace of God trains his people to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, Paul says in verse 12. Positively, the grace of God trains God's people to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It trains them to stop doing things the wrong way and to start doing things the right way. The exchange of a life defined by sin and rebellion and greed and violence for virtuous, honorable, godly lives. For the Cretans, that represents a significant and visible transformation. And that is the point that Paul is making here. The gospel not only saves the most wicked sinner when he repents, but it also creates in him what was not there before. It is the good news that changes all of life, not just its destination. We sometimes think of the gospel as the thing that gets you in the door. It is good news of forgiveness and salvation. And we celebrate that. We talk about it every week and we rejoice in it every single day. As people who know that we have been redeemed and shown great mercy, we rejoice that all people, including us, in our own strength and merit, fall far short and stand guilty before a holy God. But the gospel is the announcement that God's grace has appeared in the person and atoning work of His Son, in whose name we are counted righteous. It is an announcement of eternal consequence, but Paul says it goes even further than that, which is an amazing thing to think about. In this passage, Paul breezes right past the salvation that Christ has won for these Christians in verse 11. In fact, grammatically, the word salvation is an adjective modifying the word grace. Another fitting translation would be, the saving grace of God has appeared. His main focus is to talk about how that saving grace trains God's people. And that is what he spends the rest of the passage on. It pulls up weeds. It nurtures what is good. For Titus, this is a necessary thing to bear in mind as he begins his work in Crete. He will be tempted to try to reform the church there from the outside in, to mandate certain behaviors and outlaw others, but transformation and lasting change work from the inside out, from a renewed heart to a completely new life. The end result is the removal of sin, what Paul describes as ungodliness and worldly passions, and a commitment to self-control, honor, and a godly life. And it comes about not from force of will, a simple decision to be a better person, but reliance on the gospel to lead and train. Beginning in verse 13, Paul repeats this idea. The structure is exactly the same as it was in 11 and 12. Waiting for the grace of God to arrive in the person of His Son, receiving salvation by the work of His Son, after which there is a negative impact, the removal of something bad, and a positive impact, the inclusion of something good, the redemption from lawlessness and the purification of God's own people. It's language that seems carefully chosen for the people of Crete, who were known both for their lawlessness and their devotion to Zeus. It's the same formula that we saw in verses 11 and 12. Waiting, 
the arrival of grace, the removal of sin, the addition of righteousness. Now, that repetition does two things. The first is that it emphasizes the point that Paul is making. Saying something twice underlines it. It is God's grace which enables and brings about this transformation. If there's going to be a revival in the Cretan church, if the people there are to be reached with the gospel and their lives transformed, it will come about because the grace of God has reached them. The person and work of Jesus Christ has been received by faith. Not because Titus is a compelling leader or a charismatic preacher or a persuasive evangelist, and not because the people of Crete are deep down good people. It is all grace. But the repetition of this idea does something else. In the first section, Paul is referring to Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the long-awaited, uh, the long-awaited arrival of the Son of God in answer to all of God's promises. But in verse 13, he describes something that is yet to come, the second arrival of God's grace, the return of Christ. And it's clear that Paul does not treat this, uh, this return of Christ as a metaphorical or symbolic second coming any more than he thinks Christ's first coming was metaphorical or symbolic. Christ is coming, and His people are waiting. And while they wait, they live and work, raise children, make friends, start businesses, grieve over losses, move to new places, grow old, and all the while, His grace is at work in them, in the rhythms of daily life. Refining, restoring, and giving them a heart for doing what is right and good. Not just an idle desire for what is good. Zeal, as Paul says in verse 14. An earnest commitment, a longing, and sincere joy to live in a way that reflects the selflessness and love and compassion that Christ Himself has shown His people. Paul's point here is that the grace of God is not merely a historical event. It is at work now in his people. As much today as on the, on the day that he hung on the cross to save us from our sin and his righteous anger against our sin. So we depend on the gospel not just to be our salvation, but a daily constant need. That's actually one of our core values here at Westgate. It shapes everything that we do as a church family. We have it posted on our website that the gospel is not just a message for non-Christians, as if once we begin our relationship with God by grace through faith, we then grow and serve God by works and human effort. Rather, the same grace of God that was at work by the Spirit to rescue us from sin's penalty also transforms, equips, and strengthens the whole of Christian life and mission. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. The gospel is not merely the way that we are saved. It is the way that we become people in whom God is honored. During his ministry, Jesus shared a parable that explains the significance of gospel centrality and how neglecting it is a grave error. It came up because Peter had asked Jesus, how, many, or how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? It's clear from the way that Peter asked the question that he thought seven was a lot. It's a lot for all of us. If we're betrayed or hurt by someone, we struggle to ever truly forgive them one time, let alone seven times. But Jesus says, not just seven, but 77 times. 
The point is not that Peter should keep a tally, and once he gets to 77, he's free to hold a grudge after that. The point is that there is no limit. And then to explain why that is the case, Jesus shared a parable in which there was a king who had loaned out lots of money and decided to call in his debts. Among his debtors was a man who had borrowed a huge amount of money, millions and millions of dollars, an uncountable sum. But the borrower did not have the money to repay his debt. In the ancient Near East, this was a, this was a bad thing. There was no such thing as declaring bankruptcy. And people in this debtor's position were just thrown in prison instead. But this man pleads for mercy and for more time to get the money together. And the king had compassion on him. He lets him go. And amazingly, he even forgives the debt altogether. So the man goes on his way, having just been given the gift of millions and millions of dollars and his freedom. And when he gets home, he meets with a poor servant who owes him a small sum of money, just a few dollars. A poor man is not able to repay his debt. Reading this, you think, well, that, that, that guy was just forgiven millions and millions of dollars. So surely a few dollars is not going to bother him. But that isn't what happens. Instead, he has this poor man beaten and thrown in jail. Of course, word eventually reaches the king, and his answer is swift and furious. Having been forgiven of much, this man ought to have easily forgiven a much smaller sum that was owed to him. That is gospel centrality. It is how the grace of God trains His people. It is how Crete and Metro West and our own lives will be transformed. It is the daily and constant reminder that we have been forgiven much, that our debt was immeasurable and vast beyond all counting, and that we had no hope of scraping together what was owed, that apart from an act of mercy and compassion, our lives would be forfeit, but the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and our debt was wiped clean. It would be a mistake, a grave error, to walk out of the room where that mercy was poured out and then carry on with life as if nothing has changed. In fact, it would mock the grace of the king to do that. Instead, we live as those who continually marvel at the fact that we have been shown this mercy, and we become those who are zealous to do likewise. The grace of God is not only how we are saved. It is how we are made to be the people whose lives reflect the giver of that grace. Gospel centrality comes to bear on our lives in countless ways. It makes us generous toward those in need as we were those in need and were shown kindness. It makes us hopeful in suffering, faithful in relationships, confident in the face of death, all because of who Christ is and what He's done for us. So as we draw to a close this morning, let's look at a few critical ways that the the grace of God in the gospel transforms His people. The first is that gospel centrality trains us to forgive. Christians remember that we were once far from God, dead in sin and trespasses, and that the cost of our salvation was the blood of Jesus Christ. And that shapes the way that we react when others sin against us. Because we know that even the most grievous sin carried out against us, the most heinous betrayal is minor compared to our sin against a holy God. Yet, our debt has been forgiven. 
The price has been paid for us. Now, we are those who are able to show grace when others sin against us. It does not mean that we overlook sin or that we trivialize it or endure it unnecessarily, but it does mean that we don't have to carry the burden of bitterness and anger for the ways that our fellow debtors have hurt us. We can be free from those grudges, unencumbered by their weight, and free even to love those who have hurt us, just as Christ loved us in spite of our own sin. Secondly, gospel centrality trains us to be bold in evangelism. As we've seen, Titus was given a tremendously challenging assignment when he was sent to preach the gospel in Crete. He faced threats at every turn, and the idea of success in his mission must have seemed like a distant dream. But he knew that reaching Crete was not hopeless, that God's grace could cross those vast distances because it already had in Titus' own life. As a Greek man, he wasn't raised in synagogues. He didn't memorize the Scriptures or follow the law of God. He didn't know that there was a promise of salvation or even that he needed salvation in the first place. He did not dread God's righteous anger against sin and did not long for God's merciful protection. He was far from the grace of God, but the gospel reached him, and God claimed Titus for himself. So it is with you and me. God has claimed us, thanks only to his grace, saved us from our sin and from his wrath against it. We did not earn it. We did not merit his favor. We were not looking for him when he came to find us. We were set against him when he called us by name and his grace was extended to us. So it will be with those he reaches through our effort to preach the gospel like Titus. If the mission succeeds, it will be by his grace alone, just as it was in your life and mine. So gospel centrality makes us bold. Third, gospel centrality trains us to hate sin. It awakens us to the reality that sin does not satisfy that lasting joy is found in being unconditionally, sacrificially loved. And as it does, it reminds us that sin does not have the last word. Though there are particular weaknesses in the life of every Christian, sins that we struggle against for years and years to the point that we wonder if we will ever truly be rid of the temptation, the gospel reminds us that sin's enslaving power is not unbreakable. Yet it also cautions us against looking for simple solutions or quick fixes. We remember that it has taken the blood of Christ to atone for us and that God's work in us is ongoing over the course of a lifetime. So we do not despair over the struggle. Instead, we look to to Christ and discover more each day that His love for us is more satisfying than the fleeting joy offered by succumbing to temptation. Lastly, Gospel centrality trains us to be people of praise. We remember that the lives we live and the hope we have was purchased at great price. So we live in awe every day. If it were up to us to earn our way to joy and life by obedience and faithfulness to God, we would not worship God. We would praise ourselves for our achievements. We would pat ourselves on the back puff out our chests. But Christians know 
that we are no more able to earn our way into God's favor than we are to resurrect ourselves from death itself. Meanwhile, a spirituality that does not understand the gravity of our sin, that does not see sin as a truly dangerous thing, that does not grasp the magnitude of God's holiness, will assume that God ought to be able to simply overlook sin and our guilt, that He does not actually make a big deal of it as long as we haven't done anything seriously bad, He'll pat us on the back when we meet Him face to face. But the Christian knows otherwise, that God is truly holy and sin is truly wicked. So the fact that this gulf has been overcome demonstrates the immensity of God's love and His grace. And it makes us burst forth in praise, the joyful expression of those who have received an impossible gift, who have been made alive again. Gospel centrality keeps that truth before our eyes, such that we are able to praise God. In fact, cannot help but praise God amid every challenge, every trial, and every setback that we face in this life. The gospel is not remedial Christianity, like the thing that you learn on day one, and then you move on from to consider more complex and challenging theological questions. We preach it to ourselves every day. We gather to proclaim it together every week, not because we don't understand it, but because by it, God is pulling up the weeds that threaten to choke out everything good. It is the thing that shapes every waking moment of the Christian life and which God trains His people, and by which God trains His people to be the people of God. Let's pray together. God, as we consider the gospel again this morning, we do so with humility and joy. You are holy beyond our understanding, and the more we see sin's grip on our hearts and recognize the ways in which it has set us against you by nature, we marvel more and more at your merciful love for us. Cause us to be renewed day by day, reminding us of this message of salvation ordained by the Father, carried out by the Son, and brought to bear by the Holy Spirit. We praise you, and we pray to you together this morning in the name of your Son. Amen.